The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. June just rains and never stops. 30 days and spoils the crops. Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy. And if you'll forgive the indulgence, a bit of Flanders and Swan. That was from the Song of the Weather, written back in the 1950s by my father, Michael Flanders, and his partner, Donald Swan. We Brits were famous for talking about the weather long before it was fashionable. But now everyone's doing it and it's no joke. Climate change is an inescapable part of our daily lives with a growing impact on the economy and policy in most of the world. Increasingly, extreme weather gets top billing on the nightly news. We're also becoming better informed about weather phenomena such as El Nino. So as you probably already know, El Nino is a period of warmer temperatures in the eastern part of the Pacific around the equator which can have knock-on effects for the weather and much else in many different parts of the world. Recent El Ninos have seemed to become more intense, and the US Climate Protection Center has said there is a more than 90% chance of one unfolding later this year, for the first time in four years. If basic crops are affected in poorer economies and food prices go up as they have in the past, That would be bad news indeed after everything the global economy has been through in the past few years. In a few minutes, I'll hear more about what we might have to expect from a strategist at Deutsche Bank who's looked at the historical record. I'll also talk to a global economist from Bloomberg Economics who's made a stab at estimating exactly how prices and growth could be affected in different parts of the world. But first, Here's Bloomberg's Laura Curtis with related news from that crucial artery of global trade, the Panama Canal. Water levels in Panama's Gatun Lake are falling fast and are projected to hit historic lows by the end of July. Making matters worse, an El Nino system is forming, which typically makes the region hotter and drier than usual, and the water shortages could stretch into 2024. But wait! This is a podcast about economics. So why are we talking about a drought in Central America? Well, remember just a few short years ago when we were all waiting out the pandemic, stuck in our houses, as we waited months for the new sofas and grills and other consumer goods to arrive? All that stuff was stuck on ships and in containers as the supply chain seized under pandemic pressure and consumer demand. We know now that the crunch caused shortages and delays that caused a huge spike in shipping costs and eventually helped spur the inflation rate to a four-decade high, which the Federal Reserve has only just started to get under control. 
The Panama Canal is uh, is one of the uh, essential what we call maritime choke points uh, because this basically cuts massive sailing distances uh, very short uh, when you can transit the, the Panama Canal. Uh, the Suez Canal is another one, uh, Turkish Straits, a third one. That's Peter Sand, chief analyst at freight data company Zenita. It involves all kinds of supply chains of energy and, and, and commodities. And naturally also for, for container shipping, uh, it's a it's a vital artery for uh, for containers traveling from uh, from Far Eastern manufacturers into to U.S. East Coast if they do not go via the Suez Canal. Gatun Lake feeds the Panama Canal with fresh water to lift huge container ships 85 feet above sea level and through 12 locks from the Pacific Ocean to the Caribbean. To manage low water levels, the canal has started to impose surcharges and draft limits, or how low the vessels can sit in the water, and that means they can carry less stuff. We have a really very volatile supply chain, you know, infrastructure. Stephanie Loomis is head of ocean product for the Americas at Germany-based Renus Logistics. They're a freight forwarder, or as she describes it, a travel agent for cargo. She's not too concerned about the drought just yet. There's just so much more capacity available on ocean liners compared to this time last year. And shipping rates are low for now. But there are other things worth watching that could compound the risk to supply chains. It doesn't take much to knock it off center. And right now we've got several pretty major things brewing that if if they should all come to the surface at the same time, we could be in, in deep trouble again. For those of you listening in Europe, some of this may sound familiar. The Rhine River, which stretches hundreds of miles from the Alps to the North Sea, is already seeing water levels low enough this season to restrict trade, and fuel shipping costs have skyrocketed. The river is used to transport millions of tons of oil products and other vital commodities across Europe. Last year, it got so low that trade was severely disrupted, affecting oil refining, power generation, and more. The supply chain world let out a collective sigh of relief last week when U.S. West Coast dock workers and their employers reached a tentative contract agreement after more than a year of talks. But the deal is still subject to approval by the union's local chapters. It took a two-week wave of labor disruptions to ultimately get the White House involved. And those port slowdowns had a knock-on effect at the Panama Canal. On 1st June, there was no waiting time whatsoever around the uh, new Panama locks going northbound as, uh, from, from Asia to, to the U.S. East Coast or southbound. But what we, uh, what we have right now, uh, in the middle of June, we have five to six days of waiting. As draft restrictions continue to tighten through the summer, we'll likely see more congestion and higher fees. For now, the canal limits are manageable for most shippers, especially the largest U.S. retailers bringing in backpacks and kids' shoes ahead of the back-to-school season. But businesses moving around heavier stuff, like building materials and machinery, could already be feeling the pinch. So you could see tile and granite and, and marble if, if the freight costs, I mean, if you have to split that container, you have to split that shipment into two containers, you're essentially doubling your freight costs just like that. So this could impact some of these commodities um, costs to the consumer. 
costly isn't a word that inflation hawks at the Federal Reserve want to hear. Even as the fight against inflation has been helped by falling shipping prices, price pressures are still proving to be stickier than many had hoped, running at about double the central bank's target of 2%. Georgetown economics professor and former IMF official Jonathan Ostry says policymakers should keep an eye on the supply chain. First up, what we discovered was that um, the impact of rising shipping costs are much more persistent than the impact of rising energy and food prices, which is what we're grabbing the headlines in, uh, in late 2021, in the second half of 2021. Austria and his colleagues found that the 2021 bottlenecks, which caused a 600% spike in the cost of shipping containers over the ocean from pre-COVID levels, increased consumer price inflation globally by more than two percentage points in 2022. And for remote, small island nations in the Pacific and Caribbean that rely heavily on imported goods, it added nearly another five percentage points. Shipping costs are a canary in the, in the coal mine. They do tell us about future inflation. Austri says even with low base prices, a shipping cost increase of 20% boosts the inflation rate by 0.15 percentage point a year later. I think the warning is here, if the drought and El Nino converge to cause shipping costs to again spike in the second half of 2023, um, that should be in top of mind for for Fed policymakers, because again, what we would expect is that that would be a, uh, a contributing factor that weighs against the Fed's disinflation effort. Sand and Loomis say if this drought had hit the canal last year when the pandemic cargo surge was in full swing, it would have been a complete disaster. But with cargo volumes back closer to 2019 levels, there's enough slack in global trade lanes to ensure presents are on store shelves in time for the holidays. But water levels in Panama are still projected to hit record lows by July. And for businesses that just realign their supply chains to be closer to consumers on the East Coast or to distribution centers on the Gulf Coast, rerouting all that stuff back through California ports could be an expensive headache. I'm not calling doom and gloom here, but uh, but I think we need to look further ahead also into 2024 because that's when the next uh, dry season is uh, is about to uh, to to seen in uh, in Panama Canal and if we do not see the watershed filled up during the second half of this year going into an El Nino year that uh, that is likely to bring around a longer low uh, say drought season or dry season than uh, than than a normal year we could end up with even lower water levels in 20 24. So this may be the start uh, for, for, for full dinner served next, next year. For Bloomberg News, I'm Laura Curtis in Los Angeles. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, you heard there that the Federal Reserve and other central banks might have reason to worry if El Nino in the second half of this year ends up raising shipping costs. So what are the chances of that happening? And more broadly, how bad could those impacts be? Well, I can talk to two people now who've spent some time looking at this from the economic standpoint. Henry Allen, macro strategist at Deutsche Bank in London, and our own Bhargavi Shaktivel from Bloomberg Economics, a global economist. Welcome uh, to both of you. Henry, since you're our guest, um, why don't you give us some context for thinking about this? How how often have we seen uh, El Nino have a significant impact on the economy? in the last sort of generation or so? So the El Nino is a warming of the sea surface temperatures in the Pacific. And that might sound kind of quite benign on one level, but the problem is that that causes the jet stream to move south. And that in turn is correlated with a higher frequency of natural disasters. Now, normally this is a regular cyclical pattern that happens around every two to seven years on average. But what's really generating concern this time are predictions from a number of climate agencies that this particular episode is going to be a strong one. So for instance, we last saw an El Nino in 2018-19, but that was quite a weak one. Um, But this, at least according to the US Climate Prediction Center, could be for just the third time in the 21st century, a strong El Nino. And they're saying they think there's a 56% chance that it will hit that strong threshold deeper into this year around December, January time. I think that the, the, the most recent sort of serious time um, mm. in your piece you discussed was sort of between 2014 and 2016. So what kind of impacts did we see there? So there were several. Uh, firstly, you had actually in 2016 in particular the biggest upward temperature anomaly on record at the time. That was the highest ever temperature that the world had seen. 
Uh, you saw a higher frequency of hurricanes in the Pacific in both 2014 and 2015. Uh, that Pacific hurricane season had 16 hurricanes, the joint highest number on record. Uh, further afield in Africa, you had uh, the worst drought in decades in Ethiopia, a great deal of famine. And one study even found that because it created conditions that were beneficial for mosquito-borne transmission, it even contributed to the spread of the Zika virus. So a number of quite nasty effects were coming together there. That's one of the things that comes through in you know every bit of research that I look at is the you know the sheer range of impacts and the sort of unexpected consequences. I mean, another one that people are talking about currently is the very very high temperatures in South Asia um, that are potentially um, related uh, to this kind of environment um, are pushing countries to be even more dependent on Russian energy just at a time when we might have been wanting them to, to follow the, the US-led sanctions. I guess the most significant time before 2014, you mentioned, was 97-98. So what happened then? So a bit like with the most recent one, the most recent very strong one in 2014-16, to 16, you also had what was at the time, again, a global record temperature year in 1998, the warmest to date so far. Uh, for instance, there were massive rainfalls in California, South Fran uh, San Francisco saw its wettest rainfall season in over a century. You had major droughts in Indonesia. And similarly, you actually saw quite a bit of disease as well. For instance, after major flooding in East Africa, you had an outbreak of Rift Valley fever in a several countries, including Kenya. And uh, we're talking about it this year, as you mentioned, the US Climate Protection Centre has put the probability of an El Nino pattern unfolding at more than 90%. But as you said, mm. it's a question of how, how severe um, it's likely to be. You're a strategist looking at, at market impacts as well as the economy. Are we Are we already seeing signs of potential impacts in the markets or people anticipating impacts from El Nino? Definitely. I mean, the most obvious impact has been among certain agricultural commodities. So one example is coffee futures have recently hit their highest level uh, since one particular contract began in 2008. You've got sugar prices that are already around their highest level in around a decade. And cocoa is at a seven-year high as well. And that's consistent with what we've seen around previous El Nino cycles, whereby in particular agricultural commodities see a big upward shock, and that puts upward pressure on inflation in turn. And it is, I mean, when you say those things, of course, that's people worrying about their coffee, chocolate. We certainly have, um, you know, concerns about rice prices. Um, Bargavi, I mean, there's the sheer range of impacts that we've talked about so far, whether it's flooding in East Africa or hurricanes in the Pacific, the spread of the Zika virus in past times. Um, coming on top of the last 12 months, where, of course, we also had the impact on, on food prices of Russia's invasion on Ukraine. Um, how should we think about the potential impact of El Nino this year on top of all those previous things that have happened in the global economy? It has been pretty worrying because um, the El Nino, as Henry already mentioned, is going to definitely cause inflationary pressures everywhere. Um, the, we did like a very simple modeling exercise where we looked at a few countries, 11 countries, including the euro area, and tried to understand how this uh, atmospheric pressure um, that is caused when the El Nino event occurs could affect these countries. And what we found was that almost certainly, irrespective of which part of the country, um, which part of the continent the country belongs to, there would be inflationary pressures, whereas 
it would definitely be much, much higher among countries that are in the tropics and the southern he hemisphere, specifically because these are the countries that deal primarily with primary sector, uh, so agricultural commodity exports. So we would expect that there to be high inflation and, and lower growth. And just to put countries. just to put some numbers on this, uh, I mean, obviously there's a lot of uncertainty, but um, at the global level, are we going to notice this um, uh, the impact on inflation or and and certainly on on commodity prices? What kind of numbers would we potentially talk about? Well, I think certain countries would definitely see high increases. So Argentina, Brazil, India. Um, Philippines, all of these countries would definitely see higher inflation um, on a more global scale, depending on how severe the El Nino turns out to be, I think it could be even larger, some of these effects. So, for example, in Argentina and Brazil, we expect about a 0.5 percentage point um, higher inflation um, at an annual level. And depending on how severe and how long the El Nino event actually exists, it could be much, much greater. And given that there are significant spillover effects, both from trade and financial linkages, this could easily seep through even to like developed countries um, or, or countries that are not directly impacted by these weather phenomena. And I mean, Henry, I guess the, the various numbers, I think the sort of, oh, we could potentially be adding nearly four to four percentage points to non-energy commodity prices, obviously much that's going to have a translate into a much smaller impact on global inflation. But as Bhargavi said, it varies a lot country by country. Does that sort of broadly t tally with, with what you've been thinking at Deutsche Bank? Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that makes this El Nino phenomenon so hard to predict is that the effects are so variable. So there are parts of the world, for instance, like the southern United States, uh, where it makes flooding a lot more likely. But there are other parts of the world, particularly the other side of the Pacific, like Indonesia and Australia, where it makes drought more likely. So it's very hard to kind of find a single aggregate global effect that it has because that impact is so variable according to different regions. And I noticed, of course, when you think about possible places that the where it's beneficial to have, for example, more rain. I mean, you know, if you're an avocado or an almond almond grower in in California, um, it's actually quite good news to have more rain. But it's striking when you go through the list the inequity of how the pain gets distributed, Bhargavi. I mean, this is by and large going to be a much more negative impact, and certainly have a bigger impact on inflation in the poorer parts of the world. When we even look at things like how it affects economic growth. We found that India and Argentina, um, about 0.5 percentage points of their GDP got knocked off, but the effect is gonna be much larger for Argentina than a country like India, which has extremely high GDP growth in general. So even if they're equally impacted, I think the smaller, poorer countries whose primary uh, sources of revenue or like gen output generation is due to these commodity exports. And I was struck uh, that we had some even more extreme estimates by uh, some earth scientists at Dartmouth uh, College in the US, Christopher Callahan and Justin Mankin, who estimated that, that what Henry was talking about in the late 90s, that El Nino had led to nearly $6 trillion in lost GDP. So that's about 100 times more than, than previously thought. Um, and their point was that economists are sort of only measuring what 
we could see got damaged or we could see that the, the, the slowdown in growth that was very clear and apparent at that time. And we're not recognizing that the sort of variability in the weather can hurt economic growth in a prolonged way. So you get persistent shortfalls in output that only unfold over several years. And as a result of, sort of taking those into account, they think you could see a cumulative shortfall in GDP over the next century of maybe $80 trillion or about 1% of global GDP just because of El Nino. Um, Bhargava, you and I were sort of joking that these were just madly big numbers earlier, but is it? do you accept that we are potentially only looking at the tip of the iceberg when we do these straightforward analyses of, of the impact on food prices or growth? Yeah, definitely. For starters, we haven't even started thinking about um, other kinds of spillover effects or direct effects on uh, these natural disasters bring about them, if, if depending on the severity of the El Nino. So there definitely could be other reasons that create um, negative impacts on, on, on commodities and therefore cause inflation. But um, again, like we joked about earlier, I, I don't necessarily know if it's going to be that large, but uh, for sure, our simple analysis only looks at the direct effects, and there could be a lot more beneath the iceberg. Henry, yeah, and I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, one thing that I was quite surprised about reading about the El Nino phenomenon was that it didn't just seem to have an impact on food commodities; it was also energy commodities. There seemed to be a positive correlation too. There was one paper, for instance, by the IMF a few years back that found that there was a statistical effect on energy and oil prices. For instance, if you have drought, that means you get less electricity from hydroelectric dams. You need to find that from other sources. Another thing is that farmers in drought areas need more water for irrigating their crops. So actually, the spillover effects don't just stick with food, but they can spread to other categories of the inflation basket as well. And I guess, as you mentioned at the start, since it's technically a warmer phase for the eastern equatorial Pacific, you know, in many ways, it is a sneak preview of what we might see um, with climate change as we go as we go forward. And as we get better at measuring the impact of climate change, I guess we get a bit better at measuring the impact of El Nino. Um, Henry Allen and uh, Bhargavi Sakjival, um, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. Next week, we'll have more. In the meantime, you can get a lot more economic insight and news from the Bloomberg Terminal website or app. And for those of you wondering what the weather's like the rest of the year... In July, the sun is hot. Is it shining? No, it's not. August cold and dank and wet. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, Yang Yang and Summer Sadi, with help from Oscar Boyd. Special thanks to Laura Curtis, Henry Allen, Bhargavi Shaktivel and Michael Flanders and Donald Swan. The executive producer of Stephanomics is Molly Smith and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Sage Bowman. Bloody January again! I hope that's been helpful to those of you planning your holidays. <laughs> Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like 
everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Business Week, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.